This is OBS Radio, a service of OBS International, a division of Greater Works Business Services. Matthew chapter 1, verse 18. The Gospel of Matthew chapter 1, verse 18. My dad says preaching will make you sad, glad, or mad. And I will probably do all those three things before this sermon is over. First of all, let me say a word about Christmas. We don't habitually celebrate Christmas or Easter in our church and I'll tell you why and this is where the I will make you mad part comes in (laughs) Easter and Christmas are pagan holidays that derive from the Babylonian Empire let me tell you a little about about Easter first first of all if you are a woman you should recognize the term estrogen. And the word Easter is associated with the word estrogen, both of which come from the ancient sex goddess Ishtar. Historically, Ishtar was worshipped in the Babylonian and other religions and other god expressions or goddess expressions as the goddess of sex. Her symbols were the egg and the rabbit. Why do you think eggs and rabbits are associated with Easter? The answer is because of Ishtar. And when the Roman Empire assimilated Christianity, not only did it assimilate Christianity, but it assimilated pagan empires and through the process of time blended pagan and Christian practices. And thus you have the blending of Babylonian worship of Ishtar with Christianity via the Roman Empire and now the holiday which we presume has something to do with the death of Christ Easter now by the way Jesus did not die in spring and the reason I know this it is vividly clear from the gospel of John chapter 5 the scriptures say uh, John 10 rather the scriptures say quote And Jesus walked in Solomon's porch, and it was what? Winter, unquote. Jesus did not die in spring. So the calendar is dead wrong that celebrates the resurrection of Christ in April or whenever we celebrate Easter. Neither do we celebrate Christmas, and and let me tell you why. Now, as a matter of personal conscience individuals in our church do celebrate Christmas and that's fine if someone chooses to celebrate Christmas we celebrate it in our home as you know my wife really enjoys the the Christmas holiday 
But as a church, we don't. And the reason we don't is the same way we do not formally, according to the calendar and the dictates of culture, celebrate Easter. Because Christmas, like Easter, is a pagan holiday. And let me explain why. And by the way, if you want to read in depth about these ideas, you can read this in a wonderful book called The Two Babylons. Or one of the former professors from Dallas Theological Seminary, Dr. J. Dwight Pentecost, has a book entitled Things to Come. And the only thing I recommend in that book is his discussion of Christmas and Easter. (laughs) It's well documented that both Christmas and Easter are pagan. Here's where Christmas comes from. In the ancient Babylonian Empire, the wife of Nimrod became pregnant. She said, by a sunbeam. And having been impregnated by a sunbeam, she gave birth to a child named Tammuz, T-A-M-M-U-Z, who happened to have been born on December 25th. And Tammuz died as an infant. And in Babylon, there sprung up around the death of Tammuz, the baby of the wife of Nimrod, king of Babylon, there sprung up a religion. And that religion was a religion in which women were special devotees. And these special female devotees devoted themselves to Tammuz and the worship of Tammuz. And they would, in fact, marry themselves to the dead Tammuz and call themselves the bride of Tammuz. And watch this. And to signify their marriage to Tammuz, they would strike their breasts with the T to signify their weddedness to Tammuz. The symbol of Tammuz was the evergreen tree. And thus the whole cult of the evergreen tree and the worship of Tammuz is an ancient Babylonian custom which when the Roman Empire assimilated the religion of Tammuz into its Christianized government, it simply brought with it the holiday of the worship of Tammuz and transposed that upon the Christian religion. And now it's very perverse and pervasive in our culture. Now, having said that, let me make a point. I do think there are some redeemable values to Christians. First of all, uh, to Christmas. First of all, it's a wonderful time for you as Christians to witness to people about the true meaning of the incarnation of Jesus Christ. Secondly, it's a sacred thing to think about the incarnation of Jesus Christ at any time. And thirdly, it's a sacred season because it is a wonderful opportunity for families, particularly Christian families, to get together and share their love one with another. And it's an occasion to teach children about gift giving as well. But, dear friends, I do not want to feel compelled by the necessities of culture to preach you a Christmas sermon. In fact, I'm very hostile to this culture. And I have to be careful in my hostility to this culture. But I am going to preach you a Christmas sermon. (laughs) But maybe one that you don't want to hear. 
the message of, of Christmas is really not joy to the world, the Lord has come. The message of Christmas is certainly not jingle bells. <laughs> I think the true message of Christmas fell from the lips of a mighty angel. And let me put you to a test this morning. Whether or not you believe these angels' words determines whether or not you really believe in the incarnation of Christ. You can have your sentimentality of Christmas hymn singing. You can have your nostalgia toward the past. You can glory in the pageantry of electric lights if you think that's what this is about. You can want something, a present. But I really think the true meaning of Christmas boils down to eight words that fell from the lips of an angel. And if you do not believe these words, you do not really believe in Christmas. If you do not believe in these words, you really do not believe in Christ. Would you read with me in the Gospel of Matthew chapter 1, verse 18? Now the birth of Jesus Christ was on this wise, when... As his mother Mary was espoused to Joseph before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Ghost. Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man and not willing to make her a public example, was minded to put her away privily. Literally, he was going to disavow the engagement. Verse 20. But while he thought on these things, behold... The angel of the Lord appeared unto him in a dream, saying, Joseph, thou son of David, fear not to take unto thee Mary thy wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Ghost. And she shall bring forth a son, and shall call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins." Now all this was done that it might be fulfilled which was spoken of the Lord by the prophets, saying, Behold, a virgin shall be with child and shall bring forth a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which being interpreted is God with us. Then Joseph, being raised from sleep, did as the angel of the Lord had bidden him and took unto him his wife, and knew her not, till she had brought forth firstborn son. And he called his name Jesus, Yeshua, Jesus. The true meaning of Christmas is in the last eight words of verse 21. He shall save his people from their sins. He shall save his people from their sins. The whole purpose of the incarnation of Jesus Christ is the salvation of God's chosen people. Now let me clarify that for you. If the phrase God's chosen people for you means Menachem Begin, Ariel Shalom, 
Marcia Diane, Golda Meir, ethnic Jews. If when I say, quote, the chosen people, unquote, you think of ethnic Jews, you're mistaken, my dear friend. Here's more preaching to make you mad. Ought to make you sad if you didn't know better and should make you glad if you learn the truth. The Apostle Paul in his epistles is very clear that by the cross of Jesus Christ, ethnic distinctions have been removed. That's why the angel also said that the people which sat in darkness saw great light. And for them which sat in the region and the shadow of death, a light has sprung up. A light to lighten the Gentiles. Let us not forget that the incarnation is not an Israeli-Palestinian mere Bethlehem phenomenon. The incarnation has global and universal purposes to all humanity, inclusive not only of Gentile and Jew alike, but of Gentile and Jew equally and without distinction. Paul said in Romans 2, 28 and 29, listen carefully, he is not a Jew which is one outwardly. Now here's a categorical saying of Paul, that someone who is externally a Jew is not necessarily a Jew. He is not a Jew who is one outwardly. That is one's ethnic identity, one's physical characteristic do not prove Jewishness. And Tim Pettinger and Chris Russell, I want you to go over to that building. There's a fellow that just ran up in there, and he may be plenty um, kosher, but he's come to the wrong church if he's come for any other reason than to go to church. We had someone come to our church a few weeks ago and go in rooms and steal while we were in the building, so we'll take care of that. But don't lose point here, folks. <laughs> if you hear any gunshots, we'll dismiss, but otherwise... I'm trying to make an important point here. Please hear it. The chosen people are not ethnic Jews. That's a popular myth. In fact, not only is it a popular myth, it is pervasive myth in contemporary religious culture. Paul said he is not a Jew, which is one outwardly, but what? He's a Jew who is one inwardly. And circumcision is not outward in the flesh. Circumcision is inward in the spirit. In fact, this was the issue at Galatia. Remember when Paul confronted Peter to the face because Peter was trying to make distinctions between Jews and Gentile. And Paul said, I withstood him to the face because he was to be blamed. And he rebuked the church at Philippi in Philippians 3, 3 for this, saying, We are not of the circumcision, but rather of those who worship God in the Spirit. In fact, this is what the whole Jerusalem council is about in Acts chapter 15. To teach that, quote, God had put no difference between Jew and Gentile. So let me drive a nail in a sure place here. Again, not to offend, but to make a point from the New Testament. If the phrase, the chosen people, for you, means national Israel, dear friend, you are wrong. 
you're dead wrong. Because ethnicity is broken down in the cross of Jesus Christ. In fact, in Ephesians chapter 4, Paul uses this very metaphor of a wall separating Jews on the one hand and Gentiles on the other. And Paul says what? Quote, the wall is broken down in Christ. And anybody who asserts or advocates ethnic distinctions in the church of God must have to quibble with the Apostle Paul, not merely me. But there's another reason why the idea of the chosen people doesn't mean only the ethnic Jew, but in fact means much more than that. And that is because the New Testament teaches vividly, here again, this may make you sad or mad, but it ought to make you glad. The New Testament teaches vividly that God does have a chosen people. Preacher, are you telling me that God has chosen some folks? Absolutely. Absolutely. That is exactly what I'm telling you. And I know where your mind is running. Well, that means he hasn't chosen others? Yes, that's exactly what it means. Theologians call this preterition. You know, if you have ten murderers on death row and you choose one of them to spare, you surely haven't done any disservice to the other nine. They get just what they deserve. God could have left all humanity on, as it were, death row. Here again... I don't have to apologize for this doctrine. First of all, it falls from the lips of the angel. Thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. But it's not just the lips of Jesus, but all of the apostles of the New Testament who teach this. So let's take a quick survey of this idea of his people in the New Testament, especially beginning with our Lord Jesus Christ. Here the angel says it, but eventually Jesus says it. You remember in John chapter 10, Jesus is preaching the sheep-shepherd metaphor? And the Pharisees are standing there with stiff necks and burning ears and hard hearts, refusing to hear what he preaches about the shepherd and the sheep. Jesus said, my sheep, hear my voice. Now, by the way, that's a, an affirmation of the certitude that God's sheep will hear his voice. And I can tell you right now that if you're one of God's sheep, you will hear the voice of Christ. And not only will you hear the voice of Christ, you will hear the voice of Christ and you'll follow your shepherd. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. Now, if you think about that doctrine in context, this is absolutely amazing. Jesus said to the Pharisees, quote, A, you are not my sheep because you do not believe, or B, you don't believe because you're not my sheep. Which is it? A, 
You're not my sheep because you don't believe. That's the popular gospel today. You believe in order that you may become a sheep. But that's not what Jesus says in John 10 at all. Jesus says to the Pharisees, You believe not because you are not my sheep. As I said unto you, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. John 10, 11, I am the good shepherd, and the good shepherd giveth his life for the sheep. I am the good shepherd, and know my sheep, and am known of mine. What about the doctrine of the Apostle Paul? Do you realize that foundationally, to almost every one of his epistles, when Paul opened the parchment, rolled it out upon the desk, wet the tip of the quill, that he almost always started riding with this doctrine that God has a chosen people. You might say, chapter 1, verse 1 of Paul's writing is always about God's elect. Let me give you a couple of examples. First of all, Ephesians chapter 1. Paul just gets out of the gate. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ to the church of God, which is at Ephesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and from our Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in all spiritual places in Christ Jesus. Even as He hath chosen us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before Him, in love, having predestinated us. You mean Paul worked that long word, predestination? Yeah. You mean Paul wrote that word chosen? Yeah, right out of the gate. Right out of the gate in Ephesians. Right out of the gate in 1 Corinthians. Right out of the gate in 2 Thessalonians, 2 Timothy, and numerous other epistles. Otherwise, the angel would be a liar, wouldn't he? Look, is the incarnation about your choice? Or is it about God's choice? I want to tell you what, friend. The incarnation is not about your choice. Quite frankly, left to ourselves, we'd never choose. Certainly not the right. Certainly not the Lord. Jesus said men are lovers of darkness rather than light. The incarnation is not about your choice. It's about God's choice. It is God who chose to come into the world. And it is God who chose His people. The angel tells Joseph, Thou shalt call His name Jesus, for He shall save His people from their sins. And by the way, maybe your Christ should be renamed. Call Him maybe. Maybe 
Jesus instead of baby Jesus. Because the name Jesus essentially means one who saves. He is called the mighty God. He is called mighty to save. Thou shalt call His name Jesus, for He shall save His people from their sins. You see, there's nothing maybe about the baby. The baby's name is Yeshua. Jesus, Savior. He came by the choice of God for the chosen of God. Otherwise, the angel, Paul, and Jesus are liars. Jesus is not a possible Savior. Jesus is not a maybe baby. He is a sovereign, effectual, triumphant, victorious Savior. Now I want to talk briefly about the word shall, which reinforces this doctrine again. Thou shalt call his name Savior, for he shall save his people from their sins. There are two ways you can interpret the word shall. One, you can interpret it as a word of futurity. Shall means something in the future. Or two, you can interpret it as a word of certainty. He shall, as in he shall in the future, or he shall, as he shall certainly. And dear friends, do you know what it means in this place? Both. He shall save his people from their sins. Now, let me just edge up a little closer to your quickened spirit here. Maybe it's just quick and not quickened, a little raw from what I've said so far, and make this point. God is not a God of possibilities. Jesus is not a Savior of possibilities. He is a Savior of certainties. And God is God of certainty. Thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall. Now, it's true that is in the future from the standpoint of that angel talking to Joseph at that moment. But you know, as soon as the Lord Jesus Christ assumed his public ministry at 30 years of age, he then, as the shepherd, went into the wilderness seeking those whom the Father had given him finding his sheep one by one, Simon, Andrew, Philip, Nathaniel, John, James, Thaddeus, Paul, and by the grace of God, you and me. It was future, certainly. But it was certain, certainly, as well. Now, let me give you what I think is some overwhelming evidence that this doctrine is true, that he shall save his people. You see, the perfection of God's plan really doesn't depend on you and me. I'll tell you right now. 
You spell your religion do, I'll spell it done. It's a difference between true and false religion, by the way. It's not what would Jesus do, but what did Jesus do. We need new bracelets. God has a chosen people. And the scriptures are very clear that there's a sense in which God the Father has given to God the Son the chosen people. Do you understand that relationship between God the Father as the elector of the chosen people and God the Son as the redeemer of the chosen people? God the Father says, Son, here are my people. God the Son says, Father, I will buy them. I will purchase them. I will redeem them from their sins. You say, where would you get that, preacher? Well, just listen. In the 17th chapter of John, seven times, seven times in the great high priestly prayer, Jesus mentions those whom, quote, Thou hast given me out of the world, unquote. Seven times he speaks of, quote, the men whom thou hast given me out of the world, unquote. All right, now, dear friend, do you or do you not believe that God the Father has given God the Son a select, elect number of people out of the world? You say, I don't believe that. Okay, if you don't, may I say this with humility, you don't believe the Bible. You may believe your version of the Bible, but you don't believe the Bible. You read John 17. And then when you read John 17 and hear Jesus pray to the Father about the men whom the Father has given the Son out of the world, read this in John 6.37. Listen carefully. This is Jesus speaking. And He says, quote, All whom the Father have, has given me shall come to me. Well, let's get our words straight here. Jesus prays and declares that everyone whom the Father has given him will come to him. Okay, do you believe in universal salvation? You say, well, no, I don't believe in universal salvation. I don't believe everyone will be saved. Well, who do you think will be saved and why do you think they will be saved? You must believe one of three things. Either that everybody will be saved or that some will be saved because they choose to be saved or that some will be saved in spite of themselves because God chooses them to be saved. And the only biblical doctrine is the last one. Listen. All that the Father giveth me shall come to me. There's that word of certainty again. All that the Father giveth me shall come to me. In fact, in John 6.44, Jesus said, No man can come unto me unless it's given to him of my Father. Verse 65, No man can can come unto me, except my Father who sent me draw him. Now, dear friends, if you're on the edge of sad or mad about this, I'll just 
be a good Berean. Go search the Scriptures whether this be so. All that the Father giveth me shall come to me, and him that cometh to me I will in no wise cast out. For this is the Father's will, that of every one, this is Jesus' words, this is the Father's will, that of every one whom he hath given me, I should lose none of them but should raise them up at the last day. Thou shalt call his name Jesus, Savior, for he shall save his people. I believe that. I rejoice with the angel. You may have some other gospel spoken by man, maybe by some apparent angel of light, but I stay with its annunciatory glory to Joseph. He shall save his people. And then one last point. Are you saved? Are you saved? Well, then let me ask you this. From what? You know, we get a good feeling at Christmas, don't we? A good feeling. What does that mean? What's the good feeling? I will tell you what real Christmas is really about. Real Christmas is recognizing the saving power of Jesus Christ from... Sin. Now, I don't care who you are, what you are, how many churches you belong to, or how many times you've been christened or baptized. If you're not saved from your sins, you're not saved. I don't care how long you've been a member of the church, how many times you walked the aisle, how many decisions for Christ you made. If you're still in your sins, dear friend, let's let me be a John the Baptist here. If you're still in your sin, you're still a serpent's seed. Bring forth fruit answerable to repentance, John says. If you want me to baptize you, repent. Do not denigrate the power of my Savior by preaching a gospel which saves men and leaves them sinners. Do not denigrate the glory of my Savior by preaching a gospel which lets whoremongers, liars, deceivers, hypocrites, drunkards claim the kingdom of God when they've never repented of their sins. Do not water down the blood of Christ. Give me no pink anemia. He shall save his people from their sins. 
Now, I hope you don't go to a church that hell scares children. I could hell scare every kid in this congregation right now. But hell scare won't save you. Let me see your hands, brothers. How many of y'all want to go to hell? Let me see your hand, sister. How many of y'all want to go to heaven? Little children, bow your heads and close your eyes. If you don't want to go to hell, say this prayer. I can save the whole world with that cheap gospel. Are you hell scared? Well, fear's good. Even the devils tremble, though. The issue is not, are you hell scared? The issue is, are you blood washed? Don't claim to be saved. Please don't. You you make a deadly and damnable mistake. Please, don't claim to be saved unless you're saved from sin. You see, that's that's the gospel. Yeah, it'll save you from hell. Yeah, it'll save you from eternal death. Yeah, but those are byproducts. The reality of Christmas, the incarnation, the real power of the gospel is that he saves his people from their sins. So I guess there are several things you need to examine about this text. First, do you believe the voice of the angel? That his name really is Jesus, that it really means not maybe baby. Bethlehem ain't about Buddy Holly. Do you really believe the angel who says his name is Jesus, Savior? Do you really believe the angel who says he shall, it's certain? Do you really believe the angel who says he shall save his people? Do you really believe the angel who says he shall save his people from their sins? Well, that probably made you sad, mad, or glad. I hope it made you glad. Can we stand? And may we pray. Dear Father, whatever is good in this culture about this season, may we have grace to redeem it. But Father, help us not to mistake the dull and imprecise language of culture for the sharp, exact language of the angel. By your grace, may we believe in a Savior, a Savior of certitude, a Savior of election, and a Savior who saves His people from their sin. In Christ's name.
The views expressed on this program are those of the guests and not necessarily the views of management and staff of OBS Radio, OBS International, and Greater Works Business Services. Guests who appear on this podcast are not required to pay a fee and is made possible by RadioGuestList.com. For more information, please visit our website at www.obsintl.cf. Follow OBS on Facebook at www.facebook.com slash broadcast section. If you want to contribute financially to help us continue broadcasting, please go to paypal.me.obsintl. Thanks for tuning in. We will see you next time. This is OBS Radio, a service of OBS International, a division of Greater Works Business Services.